Is there some basis that somebody thinks they can fossil all the storm? I mean, on what, what basis would that, that even that, that answer come up in terms of a lot? So there are halachas that, that if a person crosses certain red lines, if a person is caught uh, failing to live up to certain standards of basic righteousness, you don't have to be the God Ladar, but, but if you're, you don't have to be a tzaddik, uh, a tzaddik Yisrael Olam, but if a person falls short significantly, falls short of the standards we expect of a sofer, then yes, that would be grounds for, for postling his farm. In some cases, if he doesn't have error today, we don't necessarily know that he was really rotten all along, so we're not always going to postle retroactively, but if we can establish a track record of Avera that goes back years, and those Averas are, are ones that are sufficient to, to uh, render him, un- dis- to disqualify him from writing Sifretar's Philomazizus, we would have to postle all the ones that he wrote. If we caught him, uh, as a, if we found out he was really a heretic, or he had secretly converted to Christianity, or he's a Mechal Shabbos or something, those would be reasons that we would have to postle from as long as, for as far back as that conduct to be established, we'd have to postle all the svarim. How the, the exact details of what kind of avera and how far back you project it—that that's a complicated sugya. But in general, there there is a there is a well-established halacha that if someone is caught being an avarian, we will retroactively invalidate his svarim for as long as we as, as long as we are assuming that he wasn't avarian. So he says this guy did a terrible thing. However, he doesn't think the Svarim are puzzle, and basically he's going to argue throughout the course of the tshuva, he's going to argue that despite the apparently self-evident heinousness of what he's done, it's not really as bad as it seems, and it's not really, although he's not defending it in any way, he's not justifying it, it's not really as flagrant a, a sin as one might think at first blush. So the question really is, the key question here is, how do we define the sin? What has he done wrong exactly? What's wrong with plagiarism? We, from a Torah perspective, what Torah prohibition do you transgress when you plagiarize? And throughout his tshuva, as well as the tshuva of the Maram Shik, there is a fundamental confusion or conflation between two, or, or, or kind of a uh, glossing over a, a clear distinction between two problematic aspects of plagiarism. When we speak of plagiarism today, when educators, when teachers, professors speak of plagiarism, what they're primarily upset about is that it is a failing on behalf of the author or the student to properly cite and properly credit who his sources are. And it's essentially a fraud, so to speak, of the student on, against the professor or against the public. The student is claiming credit for certain ideas, and he doesn't deserve credit for them. If he would properly cite the, the ideas, then all the then all the there would be no problem. He would properly quote and footnote and clearly clearly state where all his ideas and words came from. There would be no plagiarism. He might not get a good grade on the paper if it turned out the entire paper was cited. If there was nothing of his own, he might not get a good mark on the paper. But that wouldn't be plagiarism. That would just be a lack of sufficient original content. So plagiarism, in the modern sense, is the the failure to properly cite. Moreover, plagiarism, again, it's a sin against the professor, the school, the public. It's not a sin necessarily against the author. It might be that too. Even if the author gave you his blessing, there are, there are, there are sites that sell you papers. There are people who write papers for you. If you go to such a site, if you pay $100 to a ghostwriter to write your term paper for you, there is certainly no sin against the person who, who ghostwrote the paper for you. He's happy to take your 100 bucks and write the paper. You, he, he has no problem. He's very happy. It's good business for him. 
you are still a plagiarist, and the school will still be upset at you because the fraud is against them. The fraud, we're not concerned. The primary concern of plagiarism is not necessarily the, the, the lack of ethical behavior toward the person whose work you're stealing. It's toward the people to whom you're passing off the work as your own. On the other hand, if you don't get the person's permission that you borrowed, if you, if you borrow or steal someone's work without permission, you're also infringing on his rights. In a legal perspective, from a legal perspective, we call that a copyright violation. We say that if they're his ideas and he has copyright to them, you're not being, th- th- then you're infringing on his legal rights. And more broadly, you could have a moral right, th- th- that by not crediting him, you're depriving him of credit or the right to profit and so on. That's between you and him. That has nothing to do with the institution or the public, even if you do properly credit him. Even if you say, okay, I'm ripping off someone's work and I'm happy to sell it to you, but I give full credit, this is so-and-so's work, it's not mine, you're still guilty of copyright infringement by, by profiting off someone else's work without permission, even if you're scrupulously honest about it and you give him full credit for the work. You're still guilty of stealing his intellectual property. But by not letting him control how and where it should be published and by putting money into your own pocket off someone else's work without permission, that's, a, that's unfair to the, the owner of the copyright or to the, or to the, the one who is actually the, the author of those words or the owner of those ideas. So when you plagiarize, potentially, there are, there are two possible things that you're doing. There, there, there's, an, there, there's an unfairness to the person whose work you're stealing, assuming you do without his permission. And, 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 then, there's the, and then there's the unfairness to the public. To be, by deceiving the public, by deceiving your educational institution into thinking these are your words when really you're not, that's unfair to them. You're taking credit for stuff that's not yours, even if you have permission of the person whose work you're using. So these are really two very different issues, very different issues with plagiarism. When we think of plagiarism, we typically mean... The, the issue I mentioned first, the fact that it's not that, that you're deceiving the institution, the educational institution, you're deceiving the public, not that it's not fair to the author. But the other issue, the not fair to the author, is the copyright issue. This latter issue of the unfairness to the author is the one that the Machnechayim is primarily concerned with. The Maram Sheikh is going to raise the other issue that maybe it's not fair to the public, it's a, it's a lie or a fraud against the public, but the Machnechayim is concerned with the first, the first problem. If you, didn't, if you didn't obtain their permission to publish their work, the problem is compounded by the fact that you're not giving them credit, but the real problem in his mind is that you are, that you are acting unfairly and improperly toward the actual authors of these Chidush So let's see how he expresses it. He says, his first stab at explaining what you've done wrong, he says you have violated the biblical prohibition of Lo Sasig Vulreacha. So Lo Sasig Vulreacha is a passing in the Torah that Kipshuto, according to its normal halachic reading, is, refers to the theft of real estate. It refers to the theft of real estate by tampering with physical boundaries. You have ropes or stakes or pegs, whatever they are, that mark the boundary between your property and your neighbor's property. If you tamper with that boundary to expand your field at the expense of your neighbor's field, that is Lo Sasig Vulreacha. That's its most basic sense, how it's brought in the poskim. There are, however, midrashim and other sources that give a variety of other explanations, alpi midrash, to this pasuk. In Dafyomi and Shabbos a few weeks ago, we had one of them. It refers to either planting kalayim might violate losasik vloreacha, planting different species of crops too close to each other, or, according to one interpretation of the Gemara, it means planting crops too close, too close to your neighbor's field, 
they leach out nutrients and valuable elements of the soil. So the, the Sifri in, in, in Pasha Shoftim has a variety of different explanations for what losasig means. We should note that one of the most popular and common interpretations of losasig v'loreacha that you often hear today, the last few hundred years, it refers to improper business competition. They refer to asagas gvul. If I, open, if I open a pizza store down the block from an existing pizza store or a svarim store, if I open a uh, barber shop too close to an existing barber shop, people refer to this as asagas gvul. This is, it's unclear where this comes from. We do find already in Rambam and some medieval sources the use of lo sasig and asagas gvul to refer to this. It has no apparent source in Chazal, and some Akronim have, have noted this, that this is a kind of made-up interpretation of asagas gvul. But in any event, the Sifri does give us drushas, a number of different, number of different exegetical interpretations of this pasuk. One of them is, it's the, Midr- the Midrash in the Sifri says that Minayan, how do we know that if someone is learning Torah, teaching Torah, writing Torah, and he, exche- and he, and he transposes the authorship of various statements of the Mishnah, the Chachmeh Mishnah, instead of Rabbi Yezra and Rabbi Yeshua, he reverses who says what. If Rabbi Yezra and Rabbi Yeshua argue, and he misattributes Rabbi Yezra's comment, Rabbi Yeshua, and vice versa, so, so how do we know that, that, that he violates a biblical prohibition, a losase, Talmud Lomar, losasig vulreacha. So the Sifri, inter alia, interprets losasig vulreacha as meaning the misattribution of halachic statements from one rabbi to another. So the Machnechaim says, maybe that person is doing this, he's transposing the authorship of these chuvos from their actual authors, the Gedolei Torah who wrote them, to himself. So maybe he violates losasig vulreacha. So he says, no. He says, and other Akronim proposes this as well, what the Sifri is worried about is not simply some kind of pure academic concern with properly giving credit where credit is due. What the Sifri is worried about is a possible distortion of the normative halacha. We know Rabbi Yezer Shamuti, who we don't pass it like Rabbi Yezer, we pass it like Rabbi Yeshua. So by transposing authorship between Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Yeshua, you are going to cause people to rule incorrectly to conclude the wrong halacha. That's the problem of losasik v'loreacha, that you're, you're distorting the halachic process in cases where the attribution matters. That's why it singles out Rabbi Yezir and Rabbi Yeshua. That's why it talks only about a case where there's machlokas. It doesn't just say, if you ever hear a statement from Rabbi Yezir, don't just say Rabbi Yeshua. It means, when they argue, make sure that you, that you, get, that you correctly know who says what. So he says that this is not a general prohibition against misattribution. This is something more narrow and more serious that don't do misattribution when it can actually lead to a serious halachic error. All right, so that's... Uh, so he's not really over losasik v'loreach. Brings an interesting Gemara in Erevin. The, the Gemara in Erevin, it's a somewhat troubling Gemara to many of us uh, modern people, but the Gemara in Erevin... It's talking about a technical discussion in the laws of Erevin, in Eruvei Truman. And Rab and Rav Yosef were having a discussion. So, so Rabba quoted a halachic statement that said that Rav Yosef says such and such. Rav Yosef rules the following way. The Gemara then comments, it's not actually the case, that was a falsehood. Rav Yosef did not rule any such thing. This was Rabba's own idea, or he had some other source for it, but this was not Rabbi Yossi's statement. Rabbah basically 
said an untruth when he said Rabbi Yossi said it, a deliberate untruth. The reason he said it is because he wanted Rabbi Yosef to accept the ruling. Rabbi knew that if he didn't, if he didn't provide an authoritative source to Rabbi Yosef, the authoritative source was Rabbi Yossi the Tana. He told, his, he told Rabbi, Yosef, Rabbi Yosef, his colleague, that Rabbi Yossi the Tana had been the author of the statement. That he only said that so Rabbi Yosef should accept it, an argument from authority. He knew that if he didn't source it like that, Rabbi Yossi is Nimuko Imo, he was a particularly authoritative scholar. So without that attribution to Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yosef would never have accepted it. Rabbi was convinced that it was true. So the means justified the ends. In order to get Rabbi Yosef to accept it, he basically lied and said that Rabbi Yossi had said it. How can you lie like that? It's, it's a violation of Losasi Gloriacha. You're, you're transposing authorship. Says Machnechaim. So you see, it's not really such a big deal to transpose authorship. If you're doing it, it's not, it's not a lavda raisa because you're not distorting the halachic process because the halach is correct as far as you know. You're convinced the halach is correct. And it's just a question of misattribution. So for a good cause, you can do it. So I've always found this deeply disturbing, the idea that you can lie and you can actually, how can you trust anything if, if you know that any, the means justify the ends and any Talmud Chacham is willing to lie and say whatever he has to say to make sure his rulings are accepted, how can you, how can that possibly be the halacha? The Magan Avram actually brings this halacha. The Magan Avram says, if you hear a halacha and, you're, and, you, and you believe it's correct, you're allowed to attribute it to, to an Adam Gadol, you can say, Rabbi Yashif said this, or Chaim Kanievsky said this, even though you're lying, if you're convinced that it's true, and that's what, you, that's what it takes to get it accepted, you're allowed to do that. Obviously, a deeply disturbing halacha, but that is, that is what the Magen Avram Paskin is based on this Gemara. In any event, the Machnechaim says that it's clear from this Gemara that misattribution in and of itself is not a lav daraisa, and it will even be mutter if you do it for a good cause. So, the, Ma- the Machnechaim says, so if it's not Losasik Vol, what is plagiarism? What, what, do you, what do you violate when you plagiarize? He suggests that you are violating the prohibition against theft. This is a remarkable claim, because intellectual property is not physical property. Intellectual property is a relatively modern invention. The idea that abstract ideas, information, can be property is a uh, radical extension of the law of halacha. We've discussed this in other contexts, the question of whether halacha recognizes intellectual property at all. Machnechaim and this tshuva seems to take for granted that it does. Halacha recognizes that you can have property in information, in ideas, in your creative output is your property. Therefore, if you, again, Machnechaim, as we noted earlier, is viewing plagiarisms entirely through the lens of the unfairness toward the person whose ideas you're stealing. He says, you're stealing from him, so it's theft. It's a form of theft. Even though he says you haven't actually taken anything away from him. Ordinary theft of, pro- of real property, you, you gain ownership, you gain control of the property, he loses it. It's a zero-sum game. If you have it, he does not have it. Here, you have the idea, but he doesn't have any less of the idea. He has exactly what he had before. You didn't take anything away from him. Doesn't matter, he says. Theft applies even when there is no loss to the victim. If you use somebody's property without permission, I see your bicycle lying around, and I just take it for a joyride, even if I don't crash and there's no, no wear and tear, I return it to you perfect, unscathed, you didn't even miss it, it was the middle of the night, you weren't using it, doesn't matter, that's considered theft. That's a form of xela. So here too he says, by making use of someone's creative output without his permission, then that is a form of theft. And it's true, the post can sometimes say, if a person's not makbed, if you assume that it doesn't matter to him, 
he didn't cost him anything, he doesn't mind, it's not theft. But of course he minds, he says. Who wouldn't mind, he says. You worked hard, you had a melus batara, you, you struggled and toiled in Torah, and someone else now is going to freeload off your work. Therefore, since he's makbid, it is gzela. Rabbi? Yes? Rabbi, so that's stuff right here. The assumption is that everybody cares. What if they don't care? What if they just want to have their ideas propagated? If you're in a propaganda business, you're very interested in having them disseminated without the attribution. Right, so, right. So that, that's exactly the point. Max is pointing out that not everyone really cares. Some people don't care about the glory. They have enough glory. Some people are just so high-minded and pure-minded. All they care is about the, they want ideas to get out there. Maybe later they'll claim credit for it after their ideas are are universally known, they'll, they'll turn up as the author, but some people may truly not mind. So yes, I, I also was a little struck by the fact that throughout his tshuva, he repeatedly, vehemently insists, of course people would mind, and moreover, I was bothered by, I don't understand why he thinks people would mind, even though it's true, you worked really hard, but at the end of the day, if it is Midas Dome, why do you care? You're not, you're not losing anything. We're not talking about it's cutting into your own sales, or it's going to cost you a position, it's going to hurt your career if you're not getting credit for it. Those are all possible arguments. But if there's none of that, just because you worked hard, what is this, the, the, the little red hen, that, that because you worked hard, as I've mentioned in the past, in my family, we, we had very strong opinions about the moral of the little red hen was a good one or not. The little red hen says, I worked hard, she, she, she worked hard baking the bread, everyone else, the animals all came by and nobody wanted to help and they all just uh, were lazy. Finally, she has this delicious smelling bread, and all the animals say, can we have some? And she says, nope. Misha Tarach B'Shab, the Arab Shabbos, Hu Yochel B'Shabbos. You didn't work. Now you're not going to get any. I'm going to enjoy the bread all myself or something like that. I and some of my siblings always thought this was a terrible moral, even though the other animals are lazy and, are, and it's not right. But at the end of the day, just to be selfish like that, if you don't have enough, you don't have enough. But just to punish them for, you know, maybe if you fail for Chinuch, you have to teach them not to do it next time, maybe, but uh, the idea that kind of this smug selfishness is self-justifying, we always thought was a little, uh, a little uh, dubious, but in any event, usually in, in Chosh Mishpah, we do say that, we say it's Midas Dome. if you have a sunk cost, even if something costs you a lot of money, but if you already spent the money, and someone else can use it with no harm to you, that's a real issue of Midas Dome, to just, just not let somebody else do it just because you, you worked for it and they didn't, is, uh, is a dubious idea, and why, just because it's Torah, why should it be any different, I honestly don't know, but that's Machmechan's position, he repeats this throughout the tshuva, people are Machbid, it makes sense for people to be Machbid, everyone would be Machbid, every Tamil would be Machbid, and the, the Chiddush that he adds is, therefore, that makes Ixela, that makes it theft, the fact that it's your intellectual property, and you mind that someone else uses it without properly crediting you, therefore, it is a form of theft. As a proof that... Might Torah be different because the source of Torah often matters, that, that particularly when it's talking about halacha or halacha vasa, that knowing that it came from a certain source gives it more credibility than if it came from a different source? Right, so, so, so that, that's really the Machmachim. He, ma- he makes that point to, partly himself. He says that's why the Sifri is so worried about transposing Rabbi Yeshua to Eliezer because... We pass him like Rabbi Yeshua, not like Rabbi Eliezer. So that was his original point, that in certain specific cases, where there's a concrete reason to believe that the source makes a difference, certainly it's, it's wrong to do that. Even in general, you're pointing out, even if we don't have, we don't have a case of Rabbi Eliezer Shamuti, who, but in general, posts can have different, uh, different authoritative weights, and people, people who are students of one might be more partial to their, to their teacher's ruling. 
and, uh, and so on. So there can always be reasons in Torah why it might actually matter. And that would be potentially a good argument. That's not the argument he's making here, but that, that would be another argument along the lines of his earlier point, that it can always be important in Torah to know exactly who said what. It, it, it's, not, it's never trivia. It's never just Dvarim uh, Shalmabakach. There are always reasons why it's always worth knowing who said what. So yeah, a good point. But he focuses, in, for, for a good part of his tshuva, he focuses on the idea that it is gzela. And as a proof for the idea of, of gzela on intellectual property, he brings a very interesting precedent. He brings a Gemara in Sanhedrin. And this Gemara is, is a classic example. This Gemara and his extrapolation from it is a classic example of the, the way Halacha and Agada, the, the legal and the extra-legal portions of the Talmud, mixed together in some very interesting ways sometimes. So he quotes the Gemara in Sanhedrin. The Gemara says that a non-Jew is not supposed to study Torah. And the Gemara says, he's actually Chay of Misa, because it says, Torah tzivalanu Moshe, the Torah, Hashem commanded it, Moshe gave it to us, commanded us, lanu marasha v'lolahem. It's for us and not for the non-Jews. So the Gemara says, so why isn't that listed among the Noachide laws, why isn't it right up there with theft and stealing and uh, theft and murder and eating live animals and so on? So the Gemara says, it is listed there, because what's this drasha? It's ours and not the non-Jews. That means it's theft. It's gzela. So it's, so, or, or it's naramarasa, it's a form of adultery, but gzela, it's gzela. So a non-Jew studying Torah, the Gemara is telling us, is a form of theft, and that's why even though, taking the Gemara at face value, the Gemara seems to be saying that it is actually punishable by death in the same way that theft is, and it actually is included. It's a, it's a corollary. It's a, it's, a particular, it's a particular example of theft. Says the Machnechayim, so we see that on the one hand, the Gemara is talking about the national, on the national level, Torah is the national property of the Jewish people as opposed to any other nation. Says the Machnechayim, the same thing can hold on an individual level too. Just like Torah as a whole is ours and not the non-Jews, so too, the creative output of Torah knowledge of any particular individual Talmud Chacham is his personally, and is not, uh, and is not anybody else's. Again, this extrapolation is obviously a problematic one. Does that mean if I study your Torah without your permission, I'm Chayav Misa? Well, a Jew is not Chayav Misa for theft. But does he really mean that even, forget plagiarizing, does that mean that if I learn your Torah, I get a copy of your share and listen to it, he actually holds that that's a form of gezel? Hard to know how far he would take this. But, but yes. The idea, the idea that uh, that uh, the non-Jews are not supposed to learn Torah. I thought the whole idea uh, why the Torah is given in a place like the desert is that eventually it's going to be available to everybody and propagated. So if somebody's interested in learning Torah, I'll be cannot follow the commandments. He certainly is going in the direction that we want eventually the whole world to go. So it is true. Famous pasuk in Yeshaya, I think Rav Hirsch talks about it a lot. That the Jewish people are supposed to be an Ar Lagayim, that that we are Ar Goyim, that we are supposed to be a light unto the nations, and that we're supposed to inspire and teach and elevate uh, the rest of the world into uh, to a higher moral and spiritual level. On the other hand, this is the halacha. The halacha is that you're not allowed to teach non-Jews Torah. There, there, there is there is a there is a whole discussion about this, whether it applies to the oral law, the written law, even when people are studying to become converts, there's actually a discussion there too. How much Torah can we teach them? Can we teach them anything? Can we teach them all kinds of Torah, halacha, what they have to know in order to become a ger? 
Rabbi Kiveger has a famous tshuva. Somebody was prepared to become a ger, but it was illegal in the country in which he lived. So he wanted to study Torah to learn, to be ready, when he would eventually emigrate somewhere else and convert. He wanted to study Torah now. Rukhagar said, no, you can't, if I recall correctly. He said, right now you're not Jewish yet, you're not allowed to study Torah, you're not, we can't teach him Torah. So th- th- there are different stories about prominent, prominent rabbis who became aware that they had non-Jews attending their shiurim, what, but how they reacted, whether they expelled him or told him to leave or not. So it, 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 is, it, is a, it is a complicated sugya, and I didn't prepare the details of all of it, so I'm not going to go too much, uh, too, too much into it. But you're right, on the one hand, we are supposed to inspire the non-Jews. On the other hand, there is, a, uh, there is an actual prohibition against teaching them Torah. In the 16th century or so, there was a controversy about Rabbi Leo Bacher, who was an uh, outstanding, outstanding grammarian, Jewish grammarian of the time, he actually had a uh, patron, he had a Christian, Christian Hebraist, Christian intellectual of some sort, who wanted him to teach him Torah, and he did, and he taught him, he was an expert certainly on, on Tanakh and Torah Shavuot, and he taught him Torah, and, he, and he aroused, this aroused great opposition by his rabbinic colleagues, you can't do that, you're not allowed to teach a non-Jew Torah, and he defended himself, he explained why he thought the prohibition didn't apply in his context, but it, it, is, a, it, is, a, it is a serious prohibition around which there is a body of literature but I don't have it at my fingertips, so I'm not going to go, not going to get too much more deeply into that right now. But this is the Machna Chaim's point, that there is a notion of intellectual property. Plagiarism, obviously he means plagiarism without permission, as opposed to the buying the term papers or the ghostwriting cases. Plagiarism without permission, therefore, is a violation of the intellectual property rights of the person whose material you're plagiarizing, and therefore... The person is doing an Avera, maybe not Losasik Vloreacha, but, but he's doing a form of Gezel. Then he turns around again, and he gives another few reasons why he doesn't think, in this case, it would even be considered real Gezel. He says, first of all, he says, maybe it only applies if you, if you speak the Torah, if you teach the Torah in public, by teaching it, by promulgating it verbally, that, he says, would be an act of Gezela. By writing it, he thinks it would be different. I don't really understand the distinction so well. I don't, I don't really know why he thinks writing it is less... In some ways, we say writing it... It's true that in many areas of halacha, we say that ksiva is lav kadibur. There's a discussion whether someone takes an oath, a written oath, without actually verbalizing the oath, whether the oath is binding. There are certain halachas that have to be done explicitly, specifically with, uh, with verbal articulation, not writing. If this is a question of theft, though, I'm not sure why there's, I'm not sure why, why it's any less theft if you publish it in writing than if you, if, if anything, I think it might be worse. It's more durable. It can reach a larger audience, certainly before they had uh, YouTube and streaming. The written word probably reached a much larger audience than the spoken word did. So I'm not really sure I understand why he, why he, thinks, that, why he thinks that speaking it is uh, more of Zela than writing. But that's what he tries to argue. He tries to argue that that, that publishing is publishing and writing is less less of a, of exela than uh, than speaking. He has a couple of other arguments as well. One of it, one of his other arguments for leniency to, to mitigate the severity of his sin, he says it would only apply to a talmud chacham, a talmud chacham who understands Torah, who enjoys Torah. The Torah is meaningful to him. If he steals another talmud chacham's Torah, that's that's gneva, He says. However, this guy's an amaretz. He's a boor. 
Bor is the same word pretty much in Hebrew and English, B-O-O-R, Beis Vav Reish, someone who's empty and has no, no sophistication, no, uh, no, 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 no intellectual substance. He doesn't enjoy Torah, he says. For him, it's just, uh, it's a Maisekov Balmud. He's just making marks on a paper. He doesn't get anything out of it, he says. That, that's not Gnebuch. He didn't get anything, he says. There's no Hana. He, the, the, the property is abstract to begin with. Real property, if you steal, even if you don't enjoy it, but you stole his property. He doesn't have it anymore. But this is only uh, intellectual property to begin with. And if you don't understand it, if it doesn't mean anything to you, then that's not Gnebuch. One could have argued, since you get the glory, or you sell the books, or you get the reputation, that would be Gnebuch, but he, he says that, that if you don't actually understand the, the intrinsic Torah itself, then you are, then it's not Gnebuch, he says. His bottom line is, he says, what he did was terrible. It was a great chutzpah, he says, and a great avera. It's a novella, it's, it's an abomination, an abominable thing to do, he says, to plagiarize, he says. But at the end of the day, he's not puzzled, it's not outright Gneva or outright Lasasigvul, even though it's self-evidently terrible, but it's not enough of an avera to cost you the, your, your, your eligibility to write to Victoria's film Azuzas, he should do tshuva, be'emes tuvalev shalem, and fine, and Hashem will be mochel, the Rabbanim should be mochel, because they should support his uh, sincere tshuva, so that's not enough to passel him for a safer tar- to passel him as a sofer. What about the other things he mentioned? So he lists a whole string of supplementary allegations that were made against this guy. He lives among the non-Jews, and he, his door faces their door, and he sits outside, and he writes Sifrei Torah next to Builder. Builder, I think, are pictures. I'm not sure what, what this means exactly, but he, somehow he's way too comfortable and too uh, rubbing elbows with the non-Jews. He had to be there, I guess, to understand why this was seen as such a, uh, such a terrible thing. He doesn't have and feel a betzibur. He, uh, he doesn't hear Kaddish all week, except for Shabbos, I guess. He doesn't hear Kaddish and Kedusha and Baruch and Kriya Satara. He davens, I guess, but not with a minion. He doesn't take davening very seriously. He talks during davening. He davens very quickly. His tefillah is over in just a few moments, and so on. So he, he says again, he says, of course, uh, these are terrible things. Someone should have spoken up a while ago and put the fear of God into him and told him this is not acceptable. Someone who writes tefillin has to, has to be of unimpeachable character, he says, However, again, these are not reasons to passel somebody as a sofer. He retains his eligibility to write to Freytorit Philem Azuzas despite his unfortunate shortcomings as, a, as an ideal Yerei Hashem. So again, we should tell him to shape up, that give him a warning. From now on, we expect you to hold yourself to a higher standard. But that's enough. We're not going to take away his license to write to Freytorit Philem Azuzas. And we're, we're going to give him a chance to improve. These are not... These are not mortal sins, and he's still a legitimate sofer. Someone who wants to be a Yerushalayim, he says, should avoid dealing with this guy until he demonstrates some improvement. But we're not going to postle that he is. We're not going to postle him as a sofer. And his, his his final line is a line that wise posts can often add, which is, "This is all. Everything I say here is as an outsider. I don't actually know the person. I don't know his whole background. I don't know the story." He says. So, at the end of the day, I can't give a really authoritative, really, uh, really dispositive ruling. The Gedole Poland, like the question came from Poland, the Gedole of Poland, who, who know the situation, they should be the ones who rule and who, who give a final and more authoritative ruling, not me. I don't want to get involved at the beginning, I'm an outsider. Anyway, these are my opinions about plagiarism in general, but I don't think the guy is puzzle as a sofa.
question? Yes. That's a very good question. How far back, if, if you do find an actual disqualifying problem, how far back do you project it? That is a very good question. This comes up in a number of other areas of halacha as well. For example, you, a shochet, a shochet is shechting with a knife. He shechts ten animals, he checks his knife, and he finds a problem. He finds the knife has a nick, something that would render the shechita invalid. How many animals are treif? Are they all treif? Is only the last one treif? Are none of them treif? Gemara talks about it in the context of a mikvah. You have a mikvah that was initially measured as as having 40 saw, the, the minimum amount of water, above the minimum amount of water that you need, then people used it. And then a week later, you measured it again, and now it's under, it's only 38 saw. So, is everyone Tameh again? Does everyone have to go to the mikvah again? So, so, so these are very complex discussions in the Talmud and the later poskim. They have to do with the concept of chazaka. The, there are all kinds of presumptions in halacha that we call chazaka. In this case, we talk about chazaka de meikara, or cheskes kashrus. Something started out being valid, something started out with a presumption of kashrus. We don't know that it changed definitively until a certain fixed later point in time. How do you project it backward or not? Um, as I said, I, I don't, I, I'm not so familiar with the details of this sugya offhand, so, I, so, I, so I'm not going to actually answer your question, but, but there is considerable literature about this, about how to deal with uh, an unpleasant discovery, how far back in time do we have to retroject it? It's a good question, but it's not one I can answer on the spot. Yeah, so as I said, I'm not sure. In a case where you don't know how far back his misconduct went, in this case it sounds like they knew that they had discovered retroactively that he'd been publishing these farum for, let's say, a long time, years, and they discovered they were all plagiarized, so we know at least for a few years, we have, let's say, I don't know the exact time frame, but we know for a while we have this problem. In a case where you don't know, you caught him being Michal Shabbos, or you caught him secretly going to McDonald's, and you don't know how you can get his credit card records, but you don't know how far back it went, so what you do, that's a good question, but again, it's, it's, not one I'm, it's not one I can get into, I'm prepared to get into at the time. So this is the Maram Shik's approach. This is the Machne Chaim's approach. He, throughout the tshuva, he construes the, the problem as unfairness to the, to the actual authors of these Torah ideas. 
It's terribly unfair. There's no way they would possibly tolerate it. He repeatedly says that, that, that it's inconceivable that, 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 that the people who, whose Torah it is, Yikarahim b'pninim, he waxes quite lyrical, kol chafetzim lo yishavuba, and yitain ish kolhon ba'ava, boz yavozulo, mihu zev hu, he says, who would do this? Who would allow his Torah to be sold as an amma to ish nachri? He says, Torah is tovli, Torah piv, me'alfei zav, akasef, he says, this is all he has. How will he sleep if someone else steals his Torah? Again, I don't know what the problem is. Hashem will still give him credit. Surely you're supposed to learn Torah Lishma, not so people will give you glory. So I don't know what his problem is exactly, but he keeps saying Torah is the most wonderful thing there is, and how can he possibly allow anyone else to claim credit for it? When I read this tshuva, I kept remembering there is a legendary witticism popular in the yeshiva world. I've heard attributed to various people. I'm not sure if there's an authoritative... Here we have the same problem. I'm going to plagiarize it from whoever actually said it, but at least I'm admitting I don't know who actually said it, so I'm not sure who deserves the credit. But a, uh, a famous uh, rabbinic personality once said, if you want to steal my ideas and publish them under your own name and take credit for them, fine. I can live with that, he says. The one thing I can't live with is if you, is if you take your own ideas and attribute them to me and say that I said X and I said Y, don't do that. Just please don't do that. You want, to, you want to take credit for my ideas, I can live with that. Just whatever you do, don't, don't give me credit for your ideas. But Machanachayim uh, is saying the opposite, that the, the most intolerable thing for someone, for a Tamil is for someone else to take credit for his ideas. How can such a thing be tolerable? It's a terrible, terrible thing. But the, but the Avla, again, he, he's not really even concerned with the fraud against the public. Throughout the Tshuva, what he's concerned is the unfairness and the violation of the rights of the authors, that's how he, con- that's how he conceives the rishus of this guy. So I mentioned that the Maram Shik had a response to him. The Maram Shik wasn't involved in the original story, but the Maram Shik was, was presented with his sefer. Apparently the Machnechayim sent him a copy of his, this volume of his sefer when, he, when it came out. So he begins by making the standard apology. I was busy, so I haven't looked at it. It's, it's a few months ago, he said. I haven't looked at it because I was so busy. I wasn't home and I didn't see the mail. And then I was so busy with other things, he says, so I couldn't even say thank you and acknowledge the gift of your Sefer. This is a very common feature in rabbinic correspondence, probably in all correspondence, but you see it a lot in rabbinic correspondence, apologies for delays in answering the mail. And, uh, and he says, but now, however I am, I am going to finally discharge my obligation. I'm thanking you for the, for, the, for the great gift for honoring me with your Sefer. May you be successful. May you, may you spread your wisdom throughout the world and may, may you uh, help find the MS, and Hashem should, you should bless you and strengthen you, and you should do great things in Torah and Avod and so on. And now I'm going to write a couple of lines, comments on things I saw on your Sefer. So he has two tshuvas published in the Maram Sheikh's own Sefer. So the one that is a response to our tshuva is the second tshuva. And he writes as follows. He brings the, he brings the Machne Chaim. And he says, you're telling me it's Gzela, forget Lasasik Vol, you're telling me it's Gzela, you think that the you think that stealing someone else's ideas are Gzela. I'm not at all convinced that's true. He brings a famous halacha, right? Rambam talks about it, Shulchan Aruch, based on Chazal. If you steal a shofar and you blow it, you're Yotze. Even though if you steal a Lulav or if you steal Matzah, there's a problem of you can't be Yotze be Gezel and Mitzvah Baba Avera. You can't be Yotze a Mitzvah with an item that you stole. Shofar is different because the mitzvah is the kol and ain bekol mishum gezel. Because the, somehow shofar, the, even though you need a shofar, the, the, the item of the mitzvah is important as well. 
but in a certain sense, the, the mitzvah is more the, the sound, not the, the shofar is just the, the hechitimsa, the hechsher mitzvah for producing the sound. The sound is the mitzvah, and ein bakal mishum gezel. So, kol is ein mamish, as we say in the laws of Yisur HaNav, Adazar, I think, we say kol mara ameila, kachim. We say kol mara vareach, ein mishum meila. You don't violate meila. By, meila means if you have hana from kachim, if you, if you get tangible benefit from hektish, that's meila, if you eat it, if you... If you smell it, maybe if you do other things with it, uh, if you use it, that's, that's meila. If you simply like, well, smelling it is one of the things that's not meila. Reach is not meila. Mare, if you enjoy looking at it, it's pretty. There's no meila. And kol, if you hear it, it's not meila. Post can talk about this in the context of Avodah if you hear church bells or if you're looking at church art and stuff like this, whether that prohibited because, whether prohibited because of the prohibition of Hanar from Avodah or whether we say kol mara v'reach are permissible. But in any event, Maram Shik is arguing that Maram Shik is arguing that kol is an intangible einba mamish, and therefore there's no meila, there's no gzela. He says. So here also on intellectual property, which are abstract ideas, he fundamentally disagrees with the Machnechaim and says there is no gzela, there is no gzela on on ideas, on information. And he completely rejects the Machnechaim's whole premise that there's gzela here. Gzela is the wrong paradigm. So what is the problem with plagiarism, he says? It is a terrible thing. So what's the problem? The problem is it's sheker. It's midrash sheker terchak. And that sounds more like the other idea of plagiarism. But, but you're lying to the public. You're not lying to the author. The author knows perfectly well that, that they're not your Torah. You're lying to the public. You're lying to all the, to, to the, the people who buy your books. You're lying to those who give you esteem and honor and, and hold you in high reputation. You're lying to them, midrash sheker terchak, by taking credit for Torah that's not yours. Organevistas, which is similar. Also, the prohibition against defrauding and misleading and deceiving people, he says. So the Machnechai, so the Maram Sheik, is, is a radically different appro- approach to plagiarism than that of the Machnechai. Machnechai is concerned with theft, with an infringement of the right of the authors of the Torah. The Maram Sheik says that's not such a problem because it's an intangible. What is a problem is the deception that you're perpetrating on the public more like we conceive of plagiarism as, as, as a lie, a lie to the public. And so on. He, and then he, then he brings the, the other thing, that even though we find certain statements in Chazal about how terrible it is to misattribute, again, that's Mashmitz only when it changes the din, he says. He brings other examples of that, he says. Certainly, he, his, final, his final line, he says, certainly, God, truth is always beloved by God in all matters, certainly in Torah, Truth is, uh, is, is, is an extremely important value, but losasik vul, it's not losasik vul, which even the Machnechaim agreed, and he holds it's not really gzela either. So what it is, is a lie. What, what the Sefer did is he lied. He, he plagiarized, he lied, he deceived the public by, by taking credit for work that is not his. He doesn't seem to fail. There's any significant avla being done to the actual authors. It's not gzela. Again, whether halacha recognizes intellectual property is a whole different discussion, but here are two fundamental chuvas on the topic. Machnechayim fails. There is a notion of intellectual property and plagiari- plagiarism is an infringement on intellectual property rights of the authors, while the Machnechayim said, while the Maram Shik says that it's not really a violation of intellectual property rights, it's not real gzela, it's ain't bamamish, it's intangible. What it is, is a fraud and a deception perpetrated against the public. Yes. Um, I mean, isn't there a potential of harm to the original author because of 
to others than in the society they lived in in Europe. No original author can be accused of plagiarism uh, of the person who plagiarized them. Yes. So... But there is a possibility, you're pointing out, that you can tarnish his reputation, because he may wind up getting accused of plagiarism, or may simply get a reputational, reputational hit. If he doesn't get credit for publishing in academia, in the Torah world, you, you, you get credit for publishing stuff. And, and, and if you don't get credit for a certain work, that may it can hinder your, your career prospect. Maybe, maybe you won't get as good a job. Moreover, even more directly, if you, if you actually plan on publishing your tshuvas, many posts can did publish their own tshuvas. You may have a harder time publishing your tshuvas if someone else already took credit for them. People won't want to buy them, even if they believe they're yours. People already have a copy of them, so the books were expensive back then. So you can certainly conceive of many ways in which this would be harmful, even economically, to the, to the original author. So th- that is a good point. Neither the Maram Sheikh nor the Machnechayim seem to be especially concerned with that. But you're right, that, that, is, that, that is something else. When, when they talk about Zenen of Zelo Chasir, there's no loss, no harm, no foul. It's not that simple, and one could easily imagine that there could be harm to the original authors as well. There are other tshuvas in intellectual property that are concerned with that. When they, there's a famous tshuva in the different Malkiel discussing what we would consider a kind of trademark violation where somebody was marketing a product under a certain brand, a certain uh, label. Someone else made a knockoff and marketed it under the same label, and the different Malkiel says there, there is harm to the first person. The, the harm is either because, it, first of all, it cuts into his sales, so it, it harms his revenues. Second, it harms his brand. If you have a quality control issue, and that reflects badly on him, so there is potential harm. How that plays out in halacha is a complicated question, but yeah, there definitely is uh, our harms. So that, that is a good point, why neither the Machne Chaim, as far as I noticed, nor the Maram Shik raises the issue of actual harm. They, they all say, they, they say lo chaser. Why don't they mention some of these types of chaser? Is a good question. I, 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 I don't have an answer for that at the moment. Yes? So, in terms of the construct of the Sofer himself, we talked about Gezo, we talked about Sheker. What about just his, his moral standing, given the teachings about the Shem Omro, that, you know, it's improper to cite Torah without quoting, quoting where it came from? Whether or not there's, there's harm or not, because the, the moral character of the person who, yeah, so, so, so the moral character is not high. The, the, the halacha, though, tends to be somewhat hard-headed here. The, the, if you ask your Rav, should I buy Torah from this person, he might say, find someone who has more Yerushimayim, it's a Hidr. But the, the question here is we're dealing more with the, the hard-headed question of should we issue a ruling that he's puzzle? Not every moral failing is enough to, uh, is enough to say that your Sivar Torah are puzzle. On the other hand, we often find in Shuvas that there's a lot of literature about Pasle and Shochtim, especially. Poskim, on the one hand, are very concerned about having someone who doesn't take Shkita seriously enough, Zira Shemayim is not enough, he might be selling people trash meat. On the other hand, Poskim were very, very reluctant to fire a Shochit. He has young children, his Parnassa, telling somebody you're out of a job, this is your career, you, you, job retraining wasn't that readily available back then, the economy was pretty grim to begin with. Poskim have a, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, care they, they, they demonstrate before actually ruling someone's puzzle. If you personally ask the Rav, should I, buy, should I buy from this person, the Rav might say, if you can find a better source, that might be a good idea. But to actually rule as a matter of public binding halacha that he's puzzle, there is a pretty high threshold. So here also, I think, I think the idea would be that to, to rule that it's puzzle is uh, even if he has, they, they, they both say that, that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious moral failing, but not every moral failing is enough to actually issue a halakhic ruling of puzzle.
That's what I, that's what I think is going on here. It's really funny that, you know, you, you define hypocrisy as the tribute that vice pays to right. virtue. And this is really the tribute that vice pays to virtue. But that's about as perfect an example as you could imagine. Yeah. But not culpable. That's really funny. Right. 